Welcome to the Revolution Podcast, a joint project of the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. Here we engage leaders in conversations around how we navigate these uncharted times in our schools in a way that truly revolutionizes the learning opportunities our students experience daily. In today's conversation, we speak with Zaretta Hammond, writer, educator, literacy, and culturally responsive teaching advocate. Listen in as she shares strategies and considerations for teachers and leaders to leverage to ensure all students are being given the cognitive tools to take agency of their own learning. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. I'm Tangie Reed Marshall with the Education Trust, and today I'm speaking with Zaretta Hammond, writer, educator, and literacy advocate. Zaretta, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you this afternoon. Thank you for having me. We are so thrilled, and we're looking forward to a great conversation. So let's go ahead and get started by having you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your work. And we know that many of our listeners know you, but it's always good to hear you talk about you. So please let us know about you and your work. Thank you for that. And it's interesting. Every time I have this opportunity, I find myself located in different parts of my own journey. You know, sometimes I tell the story of getting started as a student in San Francisco Unified School District and how that unknowingly radicalized me or I tell the story of my mother's own journey from welfare to working in the first welfare to work program, CETA. And that ended up with her being a library technician at the San Francisco Public Library for 30 years overall. As a young mother, she would bring us to the library and pile books on the table. So my journey is both as a reader and as a writer, because of all of these experiences got really, really, for lack of a better word, radicalized around the need for equity. But recently, my work has really been centered around culturally responsive teaching. And while that has not been the area that I started out to study, it has been one that I came to use in my practice as a writing teacher. Actually, I started in education as a policy analyst with the Education Commission of the States back in the day. And I was so frustrated by the policy talk that I said, oh, I just need to jump into the fire. And I went back, got my teaching credential and my master's program, got into the classroom because I was passionate about writing. I started teaching composition. That's the only thing I've ever taught for five years I had my own classroom. And I learned firsthand that we were having kids get to the high school level, community college level, where I taught, underprepared, not good writers, and feeling a lack of confidence. And that lack of confidence really was because of their lack of competence. And I really set out to start to figure out how I help them level up their learning game. And because I had to teach writing, I can't make you a better writer. I can't jump in there and revise your sentences. I needed to help you see for yourself and learn how to carry more of the cognitive load. So these days, that's where a lot of my work is. What does instruction look like in a way that is robust, levels up students' learning, and helps us move beyond just talking about standards and learning targets and this kind of technical talk that I find we are caught in these days? So long answer to your straightforward question. No, I love the long answer because it helps people humanize people. It's really easy to think they know you because they bought your book. But now when you talk about your history and the journey, the different women who touched your lives and how you became a learner and a literacy learner and a writing teacher, 
it gives people hope that where they start is not going to be where they end. So thank you so much for that. And I so appreciate you saying, you know, we are so stuck in that technocratic space of teaching and learning. You know, we've both been there. We know the importance of meeting standards because standards do matter. But kids are more than standards that the things we teach, right? And I would say, you know, we talk about John Dewey, but we teach in a Thorndikean manner, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so we've got to be able to get past that. The New Teacher Center and Education Trust campaign is focused on revolutionizing education. What type of revolution would you like to see in our schools? You know, here's a catchphrase I use really frequently with the folks in my community and educators I touch, and that is only the learner learns, that the unit of change is the student. And the revolution I really want to see is around helping students be the leaders of their own learning, not in the sense that just go out there and freestyle, but the idea that over time, I am giving you the tools and the mindsets, the capacities to own your whole self, to grow yourself, that your narratives about how you learn, what you learn, and your capacity to learn are not limited by dominant narratives that would want to reinforce a white supremacist cultural structure. So we want students to show up as their full selves, but we don't offer them any intellectual curiosity opportunities. We don't allow them the intellectual safety where they can be vulnerable as learners because all learners fail. And we have to help students learn from their mistakes. Mistakes are information. They're not some type of proclamation about your worth or your intellectual capacity, but this is what the way we talk about it, right? So I think the revolution has to be around learning. The science of learning is becoming very popular, and I hope it doesn't go the way of, you know, the brain-based learning. How, how much of an oxymoron can you get, right? Brain-based learning, as opposed to what? And we say it all the time. But the science of learning is really important. And I think that work that is going to be coming out on the horizon, I know Linda Darling-Hammond, Pam Cantor, and a lot of her colleagues are doing some really powerful work in this area and bringing this research so it's usable in the classroom. But the reality is we all should understand how learning happens for students and how we help them expand their capacity. And we have to invite them into an apprenticeship. So the revolution has to be around what we consider instruction. Too often, teachers covering their content get mistaken for instruction versus instruction is me being the personal trainer of the student's cognitive development, right? Wax on, wax off. You're not a karate expert, but Mr. Miyagi knew something. I need to help you get these moves so that when we are in the dojo, you actually know what to do. We are not giving students the kind of cognitive skills so they can do that mental karate that allows them to level up their game. Instead, what we still see, particularly for black and brown kids, is very low-level tasks, over-scaffolding. I call this the pedagogy of compliance. So the revolution has to be around being able to get a a pedagogy of liberation, right? A pedagogy of empowerment, pedagogy of acceleration, knowing that inequity by design historically has been crafted institutionally to underdevelop their capacity. The counterbalance of that is not anti-racism. The counterbalance of that is information processing prowess, that academic prowess that Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings talks about is at the center of culturally responsive practice. 
Yeah. You know, we find with Dr. Latin Billington's work, everyone likes to talk about the social part about that, right? And really making kids feel good. But it's just really about something very interesting that we want that cognitive place, right? Like how can we push kids to their cognitive best, that demand on their cognition? You know, you talk about that and I love how you talked about being sort of the coach beside them to get them to bring out what's already in them. And you talk a little bit about how what happened. Can you talk some about how can teacher prep be a vehicle for what it would take to make some of what you talk about happen? I think there are two parts to that. So one is, you know, just as a, a tweak on, on what you just said, one of the things that I suggest is we're not trying to push students to higher levels of cognition. We already see that. You cannot cajole anyone to do that. You have to be pulled by a vision. And that vision has to be intellectual curiosity. It has to be grounded in the schema and the funds of knowledge that students bring. And we got to anchor and twist, not bait and switch. The reality is, what is the student curious about? What are you bringing in? What's making you go, hmm? How are you making connections to these bodies of knowledge? Now, this is where teachers then have to be the cognitive mediator. This is one of the things that Richard Elmore talks about as he talks about the instructional core. You know, Richard Elmore is the professor out of Harvard School of Education who talks about the idea of the instructional core and then he and his colleagues built instructional rounds from that work. Now, it's interesting. Everybody in the district, everybody their mama is doing instructional rounds, but they can't tell you what an instructional core is or what's supposed to be happening within the instructional core. So to me, schools of education, teacher prep programs should be able to do that. Instructional rounds, everybody's doing instructional rounds, but the, the reality is, do they understand the instructional core, right? The the student and the content always in a dynamic dance. That's what Dr. Elmore tells us. But the reality is many teachers are coming out of their teacher education programs not understanding that. So that my job as the teacher is to be that cognitive mediator first. Then it is to look at the content and say, how must it be mediated? Where are the cognitive hooks between what the student knows and what this content is asking them to learn? Because that is how all brains learn. New knowledge must be coupled and integrated with old knowledge. Now, a lot of our teachers are coming out not knowing the basics of the science of learning. Absolutely right. You know, we hear that push and we hear that challenge. I've been looking at Twitter, and I know you are too, with parents really being very taken aback now that they see what's happening in their homes about their children not being taught how to read, you know, and we're seeing the non-research-based practices that teachers are using on students because they don't know what it means to teach a kid to read. And so now they're using structures that are not based in research and things that we know don't work with the hope that a child will be able to look at a picture and think through what it might or might not mean how to say it. So that science of reading, along with the science of learning, has become front and center in the conversations about learning these days. And I am so glad because, you know, my own children, I actually remember teaching them how to read because I knew how to do it. Right. But, you know, parents don't always know how to do that. And that's the teacher's job to teach them how. 
This is where I think it's an act of revolution and liberation. Enslaved people taught each other to read with sticks and dirt. But here's the thing. What white people don't understand is they were caught in that cycle too. America's anti-literacy laws were designed not for people of color. They were designed for white people who had been given whiteness as a privilege. And what they were threatened with is you teach people of color, indigenous people, people of African descent, to read and we will revoke your whiteness card. Here's the thing that I also say. So part of my work has always been with parents. You should not be at the whim of schools. And back in the day, we did this. We had freedom schools in the 70s. We had community schools back in the day where very much we took a collective responsibility to making sure each one of us had those core skills, right? Collectivist practices where we have an age grade system where the youngest is taught by the next oldest age band and so on. So those kids were under the tutelage and apprenticeship of younger people who were reading to them. So NTC and EdTrust are working to disrupt and dismantle educational equities. This requires teachers and leaders who are able to engage in culturally relevant instruction. You've talked about that. What will it take for those shifts to happen in our country from a leadership standpoint? I think we really have to help leaders develop their capacity because their first step in having a capacity to hold the space for teachers who don't have a lot of contact with people of color outside of a school setting. The leader has to help people change their mental models. And this is very different than, well, we got to help people get their mindset straight. So I've seen schools that have said, we've been in courageous conversation and doing this work for seven years and our data hasn't changed. Because their theory of change is this idea that if we do this, this is what's missing. These kids are disengaged because they don't see themselves in the book. So what we do is, well, let's diversify the books. Let's get more brown faces in the books. Well, then magically that doesn't teach a child how long vowels work. And now here's the rub about that particularly white educators, white progressive educators, think we're always having a racialized conversation. So if I'm actually just teaching you the most powerful way of decoding, right, not as a low-level skill, but advanced decoding, we're talking about morphology. We're now talking about word, how words work, the power of rhetoric, right, moving back and forth across registers, right, that home street language versus that academic language, versus that business language where mama told you to go down and pay that bill. And this is how you speak to the shopkeep. You learned all that and you learned how to move back and forth. All you got to do is watch Oprah and Barack Obama just slide back and forth out of some street language all the way back to the highest level of diction and rhetoric. That's a skill to be used, but we don't leverage that because somehow we have reinforced that cultural differences are intellectual deficits. So if a leader sees this stuff popping off at the school, how do they correct it? What I have found is leaders don't know how to do that. Your leading is not just giving some inspirational message. Your leading is not just, we're going to have anti-racist, courageous conversation. You have to lead in the small moments. You have to know how to help some people move past what they've said. You've got to see what are the narratives of difference in my school? Who are we saying is smart and who are we saying is not? And how am I now going to help you move from here, adult, to here? This is a shift in mental model. So the leader who is being a culturally responsive leader understands systems thinking. A leader who is being culturally responsive understands inequity by design and walks in the classroom to see who 
ask the question, who's carrying the cognitive load? But the reality is too many leaders think if I'm doing culturally responsive or anti-racist, it always has to be about a racialized issue. That is not only a mistake, but you are playing into and being an unwitting participant in the maintenance of white supremacy culture. This is not like, oh, that's a little mistake. It is you are either for it or you're against it. And more importantly, if until you actually do better, you are going to allow the reproduction of that inequity. But we consider ourselves woke because we're talking about opportunity gaps as like the newer language. We are still not grounded in the science of learning. A cultural responsibility understands how these are all connected and doesn't get caught up in the anti-racist rhetoric and jargon. That work is real, but it is also coupled with, that means I know how inequity by design underdevelops the cognition of students. And it's not just about putting them into more rigor. Well, we got to give more rigor. This is why my framework is called get them ready for rigor. So talk to us about that framework. Talk to us about that framework of getting them ready for rigor. How does that sit within a domain of revolutionary thinking? The revolutionary thinking is that the student is the one who is leveling up their learning, that you're not doing that. You very much like the mentor, very much like the journeyman, the apprentice comes to you to get ready to perfect skills, right? The idea of Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours. Where are we helping students, not just 10,000 hours of drill and kill, but literally engaging them in conversation, helping them step back and look at their learning moves, right? That idea of improving information processing, deepening background knowledge, not by suggesting you have none, but how do you take what you know and start adding more to it and then chewing on it? This is what I talk about is the chewing part, the how are you giving kids space to talk? How are they processing that information? What products are they creating? Are they actually making real world things? Are they solving real world problems? Go into our classrooms that are largely black and brown. The darker the children, the lower level the cognitive task. This is what TNTP's report lifted up. 71% in that very first figure says 71% of students finish the assignment, but only 17% actually meet the standard. What that says is we've got a pedagogy of compliance. We're getting kids to hand in the thing, but they're not learning anything. A leader who considers him or herself culturally responsive understands that cultural responsiveness is designed to upend that inequity by design. Not by just conversation, but by making sure every child in their care leaves as a powerful, cognitively independent learner. You brought up the over scaffolding and the low level tasks. And and the interesting thing about the TNTP number was they talked to teachers and 80 plus percent said they believed students should have access to high rigor, high standards work. But only half of that believed the kids who they taught could actually do that kind of work. And so here we talk about the 17% of the assignments, only 17% being up to level, up to task, up to the kind of work that demands students' cognition be brought to bear in a way that's respectful of their intellect. That number was only 17 versus 71 who completed the activity. 
And I think your point is one well taken that teachers don't have confidence in students. And this is a, a holdover of those racial narratives that Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Institute really talks about. He talks about that the horrible aftermaths of slavery that we are still reckoning with are these narratives of racial difference. The assumption of criminality, the assignment of intelligence, who's naturally gifted intellectually, who's not, and the way that those narratives have seeped into the common way teachers are trained, the common ways we talk about it in our daily advertising, in our looking at data. Our hair is not on fire because Black and brown children chronically are at the bottom. We've made up an explanatory story as to why that's happening. Lack of motivation, lack of relationships, cultural identity. Here's the reality. There's something too, I will be fully engaged when I can see myself, but if I'm motivated to learn something, I will learn what I need to learn. But this idea that it's just, you know, it's just an engagement problem is oversimplified by this narrative of racial difference that, you know, those kids just aren't smart. Those kids really aren't geared for that. You see this with the detracking of honors and AP courses, right? They let kids in, but kids don't have the writing skills. They have not regularly been engaged in the kind of cognitive routines that allow them to thrive in those situations. Not because they're not smart. They've just not developed the learn how to learn skills that are appropriate for that setting. That's why I say get them ready for that. Where are they learning that? They should start in second grade. This is where maker-centered education, project-based learning, uh, place-based education, there are Montessori education, right? We can remix any of those to leverage how we know the brain learns. But when it comes to black and brown children, somehow we need to feel we got to control their bodies and their brains with this pedagogy compliance. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I am just so thrilled that our listeners are going to be able to hear you talk about this. We've talked a little bit about pre-service teachers and what we think is necessary. How can individuals who support pre-service teachers make small changes towards bigger goals? I think there are a couple of things, and it's a multifaceted issue, but I want to zero in on one or two things. Back in the day, one of the things that we did that we thought as teacher educators was addressing this is we'd have teacher candidates go into communities of color. And if they toured those, if they did home visits, then somehow they'd have a sensitivity. What we found out later was that this actually reinforced deficit thinking because there actually was now evidence that they're, oh, see how those people live? Those people, those kids. There was no interruption of the idea of racialized structural outcomes. John Powell talks about structural racialization, that our systems are set up for this. Uh, Michelle Alexander talks about in the New Jim Crow, that first chapter of that book, The Rebirth of Cast, that's worth the whole the money of the whole book. If you don't have pre-service teachers who don't understand how inequity by design works, their deficit story is just those people don't. So the degree to which their racial literacy is high, meaning they do have an anti-racist, not just dance, but they understand they have racial literacy that is both knowledge and is social emotional, meaning they don't get over fragile 
by having to confront our racial history and understanding how it's still being enacted today, that it's not history at all. (laughs) That's why it's racial history. I think those are really important pieces and that you have to have teacher educators who understand those. And that to me is a nuance on social justice because there's a way social justice education when done incorrectly is removing the person from building this true bicultural lens as well as an anti-racist stance. So this other part is building the bicultural lens. And you're going to have to not only increase your racial literacy, but you are going to have to start understanding how to bring a balance of racial orientations. So that means you're going to have to go beyond your own bubble, if you will. If you don't interact with any people of color in a substantive way, you're going to have to just figure out, how do I do that? I tell folks, Pick a television program that people of color are watching or recommending and be able to just watch it, to sensitize your lens to it. Pick up a magazine. What are the popular magazines that Latinas are reading? Immerse yourself in their reality, not in some abstract way, but actually, what is this experience? Knowing that this is the way Inequity by design is trying to tell me these narratives work. How are you interrupting your own mental model? That's right. What are you doing to disrupt the flow, right? Because sometimes our cognition likes to just run on automatic and we have to disrupt it actively. We not only have to interrupt our mental models, which are at the core of our cognition, but we have to interrupt our wiring that tells us it is dangerous to be a white person in a largely black and brown environment. Because what happens is the amygdala takes over and there's an unconscious, irrational fear that sets in. Why? Because these narratives of racial difference right? The assumption of criminality with large groups of black and brown people. What we don't understand is those messages are fed to us as part of white socialization. They're fed to us as part of kind of identity development. As people of color, we know how to push back on them with our counter narratives. But the reality is white people don't push back on them. It's assumed truth. It's the essentialized, commonly accepted information that we just sort of all go with. Right. We know because of the skin and gender we live in, the amount of disruption we have to bring to the table all the time. But they do not. You know, and that's the part where you're right. There has to be a cognitive, clear, intentional disruption of that wiring. That's absolutely correct. You have any examples where you've seen a commitment to equity translate into improvement for students? You know, I've seen small pockets. Someone just asked me that yesterday, and I was brutally honest that I've seen no major transformation. And I'm going to tell you why I have not seen it. Because I have seen school districts too eagerly glom onto something that they want to call culturally responsive and then scale it up 10 minutes later. And now nobody actually knows how to do the thing. But now, as a result, we've defaulted into just this bundle of techniques and strategies that have some magical element to them, like, you know, Harry Potter's wand. It does not follow with kind of how we know change happens, a theory of change, the idea of building capacity of a small pod or crew and their ability to lead from their practice. This is how we've helped students move from dependent learning past compliant learning to cognitively independent. 
When you have a small cadre of people who know how to do that, instructional coaches, leaders who know how to do that, then they can bring more people into the fold. But this idea of large district scaling out of some sense of urgency, the urgency has to come in getting it right, demonstrating you can before you start to scale. And that's what we do too often. We don't have the right people who know how to hold that next cadre of people as they move through the messy middle of the work. We then default to a bundle of strategies. So now we have lost the personal part, the apprentice, the personal trainer of another who in conversation, dialogic conversation is how the brain actually grows and gets better. We lose all of that because someone said, oh, we're going to do morning handshakes. And now we spend 20 minutes on morning handshakes and the children are, what are they doing in the classroom? We're losing instructional minutes to things that districts have labeled as culturally responsive and white educators have no better way of knowing that that ain't culturally responsive. No, it's not. It's it's actually patronizing. It is patronizing and damaging because it reinforces that view that these kids just aren't engaged. There's a, a gentleman who does a lot of work on standards and uh, he posted something in social media and he talked about how students are struggling with literacy. And, you know, since the kids don't have the background knowledge and I immediately came for him and he said, well, I'm not in the business of blaming teachers. I said, well, we're not blaming teachers. We're asking them as a call to action to do the job they know. So if a child is struggling to learn how to read, that's not the child's fault. That's an adult. That's an adult action. Kids learn how to read primarily from adults. And so he did not appreciate that push on the reframing of deficit language. He'll be all right. The more we understand the back and forth between at least two humans as prerequisite for learning, then the blame is not solely on the teacher. There's no blame at all. This is what Elmore calls the instructional core. So when it's not working, you have to look at the system. And that system is the teacher, the student, the content in a dynamic dance. What needs to be adjusted? And here's what Elmore says. Change one, the other two have to change. So the reality is the way that we move beyond blame and shaming of educators, because, hey, we've all sipped the Kool-Aid. The reality is we have to now take an inquiry stance to say, what parts do we want to keep? Because they are working to a certain point. But what things do we need to stop? because they are either siphoning off time or taking us down a wrong road before we add new things. But that's an important piece. What do we keep, stop before we start? And this is what inquiry allows us to do. Get higher, pull back. This is what Ferrari called praxis. Conceptual understanding coupled with informed action that then is predicated and tweaked and adjusted with reflection. Critical eye critical reflection, knowing that that social political context is always one of the lenses that I'm looking through. What would be your call to revolutionary action for listeners, say tomorrow, next week, or even next month? We can talk about mindsets, moves. I think a mindset is how we message the work is important. Shared language matters. Narratives matter. Given that, not only do we have to offer counter-narratives, but we have to learn to be in community to help people correct misinformation and damaging narratives. 
part of that is how do we as adults learn to actually engage in that so that people don't feel like you're rolling up on them. You're not trying to be the microaggression police, but you're trying to be in community. Like when we know better, we do better to paraphrase Maya Angelou. How do we actually couch this in ways that we're all trying to get better and that friends don't let friends just go down the wrong path. Critical friendship matters to this work. And that means adult community building the skills of giving and receiving effective feedback, just as we want kids to actually do that. But we do it because we are in praxis. We are trying to get better. And it is evidenced by kids wanting to turn their cameras on, wanting to lean into the work because intellectual curiosity is creating a dopamine hit and they just can't help. You know, you want them to say, ah, is it time already? I don't want to get out of here. I don't want to get off, right? That's always a good sign. But that is what we as adults are trying to do. That's what the personal trainer tries to do. They try to help you change your mental model and your mindset toward regular exercise or healthy eating so that when you are not in the view of that personal trainer, you will do that consistently. Because it can't just be that one hour that you come that you think you're going to get transformation. And this is what's, is what's happening. You know, so that's the mindset piece. The move is how are we helping kids build word wealth and background knowledge? So if we know that these are important things. We don't have to keep having racialized conversation around them. What's the doing look like? For me, one of the things that I've been offering is in distance learning, you know, every crisis brings an opportunity. What is the gift that it has brought us? And I think it's brought two gifts. I think it has revealed the degree to which we over scaffold and initiate students into dependent learning well beyond their preschool, early education years. All children start off as dependent learners. But unfortunately for black and brown children, we arrest their development there all the way through elementary into middle school and high school. So that has to be interrupted. And I think the way that we begin doing that is to reclaim community learning, meaning this idea of place-based learning, getting smart. Tom Vander Ark and, and his crew just came out with a wonderful report that is called Place-Based Learning. But place-based learning has been around for a long time. I mean, I do a lot of work in Juneau, Alaska, and their work is grounded in community, grounded in the land, grounded in the history of the land, grounded in place. And what I'm saying there is, well, we don't have to replicate what they're doing, but you have to be able to look in your own backyard and say, how can I learn about anything starting with what's here. There's history here. There are things you discover. There are connections to make. Agency by Design Oakland is doing some really powerful work because what they started to do, this is the moves part, is they realized students were at home. So they paired a wonderful literacy book. Ada Twist is the one that they paired. I've suggested Word Collector because I love that book. So I'm waiting to see what happens with that. But Ada Twist and a few others, Ada is a little African-American girl who is just curious. She's curious, not just in asking questions, but trying things, inquiry, experimenting. And her parents, she's got two Black parents that encourage her and give her structures and other things. What Agency by Design Oakland did, absolutely, is they started to create these spark kits. So they put a magnifying glass. They put some other stuff. They Here are the instructions for 
you to create your own curiosity book. And they couple that with the learning thinking routines out of Project Zero, the making thinking visible thinking routine as a way for students to actually take in and process what they're doing and seeing it's the wax on wax off of information processing. I don't have to talk to kids about information processing. I just have to give them tools to do it. Right. It's like when we talk about critical thinking, we don't have to talk about critical thinking. We create the environment where critical thinking has to happen. We give them the tools to do it, but then we put them in situations academically, intellectually, where they must bring critical thinking out of themselves as they engage, like you say, in community. This is fascinating work. I'm so excited that we've had this opportunity. Is there anything else you want to share that we didn't talk about? I am very passionate about this idea of word wealth. I think it's something that we need to really support parents in doing. Because Here's what I say. Parents are the child's first teacher. They may not know the word pedagogy, but if they've sent a child to you that is socialized and potty trained, they know pedagogy. So we need to kind of respect them. We've got to give them their props. And we have to partner with them, not as I got to tell you this, but as we are in this together, we're in essence co-parenting. I am standing in stead for you. And if a parent's listening to a Zoom class and it's like, what is that? Then, you know, where are the opportunities for parents and educators to be in conversation about what they understand? Teachers are not the only holders of teaching knowledge. And so the degree to which we respect parents, particularly when they are bringing a cultural lens and cultural ways of learning. So I talk with teachers and I'm supporting that there are cultural moves for learning. That's not just, oh, brown faces or group work, but we have a tendency not to talk about those, but parents are using those naturally. So I want to encourage every parent to get kids not necessarily excited about reading books. Some kids are and some kids aren't. But I will tell you, the brain is very curious about words and likes to collect them and wants to have word wealth. Why? Because word wealth allows a certain kind of prowess. All you need to do is look at those folks that are making beats and spitting lyrics. That is some of the most sophisticated wordplay. We actually get the game taboo. There are five cognitive moves that keep ascending when you're playing taboo. Now, here's the thing about it. I call this hide the vegetables. I don't need to tell you that I just pareed that sweet potato up in that muffin. I didn't even eat the muffin. Kids can do something like the history of evolution of slang. Go interview your grandparents and your great-grandparents if you're blessed to have them. Say, what did you call that? We calling it tight now. What did y'all call it? Yeah, it's so funny. I was looking at my uh, my 19-year-old and I said something and he said, mom, are you about to do, are you about to cook us dinner and use your Brussels sprouts? I was like, dead up straight. And he was like, mom, did you just say dead up straight? I was like, yes. He's like, oh, I gotta go. I gotta use that now. So he's going to bring that forward and like, you know, interject it in his new, you know, what's old is new and, and having that community of language. That's it. The, the reality is we like to perpetuate this idea that, you know, marginalized communities don't have literacy. They have it. You just have to be looking for it and you have to leverage it. And I want to encourage parents to lean into it. Yeah, we don't have time, but pick a word, right? Even Jerome in, in, in the word collected, Jerome said, I'm just collecting words I'm curious about. I'm like, right on Jerome. And then those led to him pairing them. They led to him then like, I want to string some together. I think I want to write some stories. 
So literacy comes as this natural evolution of curiosity that all human communities have perfected. We need to stop acting like some folks don't have nothing. This is what teacher educators need to bring to teacher candidates, those pre-service teachers. Again, lifting up what Dr. Karen Mapp says about our dual capacity partnership with parents. We've got to learn from them. They've got to learn from us. And we get better together in the service of liberating their child's brain. That's right. Liberating the brain. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much, Zaretta, for spending time in conversation with me today. I know educators across the country will be so inspired to take action. So appreciate your willingness to be here today. Thank you for having me. We're all in this together. Thank you for joining us on the Revolution Podcast, sponsored by the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. To engage more deeply in our work, please visit our Revolution Campaign website at www.newteachercenter.org.